It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. I appreciate patrons such as Gary, Juanita, Pamela, and Stephen, Nancy, Jim, and Robbie, Jan, Daryl, Daniel, Jocelyn. They became patrons of the show, and you can as well just by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. Then they get exclusive content like the Thursday night live streams that we do. And the bumper stickers, of course. Um, so apparently, uh, the wind knocked over our president the other day three times. I'm not sure if this is climate change related, but uh, uh, not even a strong breeze is enough, apparently, to knock over President Joe Biden. And I'm not really sure how I feel about that, because on the one hand, like, I know he's old. He's like 80, almost 80 years old, I think. And... Uh, he's, you know, he's not a big guy to begin with. He never was. And so now, you know, as you get older, he's like gotten thinner and I guess, you know, there's like a bone density thing going on there too. So he's probably pretty light, like easier to knock over. And look, I don't think that just because you're able to get knocked over by a slight breeze, I don't think that necessarily makes you, you know, a poor, uh, politician or leader or anything. I mean, as long as, as long as your brain still works. Well, okay, bad example. But, you know, as long as you're still able to, you know, fulfill the role of the job, like I'm not sure if the physical weight of a person uh, should really uh, determine whether or not, uh, you know, we invoke the 25th Amendment, which I think that is the standard now that we are supposed to apply. Because I remember uh, when Donald Trump walked down a ramp a little bit too slowly. And uh, this prompted, well, here, this prompted all sorts of uh, commentary uh, from the left and the media. But I repeat myself about how Donald Trump, there's obviously something wrong going on. Here's the Morning Joe, MSNBC. The event sparked some concerns about the president's own health, particularly <laughs> this moment over the weekend. Where- I love this. I love the way media uh usher in a story, by the way, they will usher in the story by saying, um, you know, it, it prompted concerns. It raises questions. Like, no, it, it, it doesn't actually. It, you're, you're just saying that as a segue to get to a story or a commentary that you want to make and you want to tell. That's it. That's all that, that that's all that's about. You know, like some would say that you should go to growershemp.com. Like I would say that And that's a segue there. See, so I can talk about the thing that I want to talk about, which is growers hemp. I take the full spectrum hemp extract. I take um, a couple of drops before I go to bed every single night and I sleep more deeply than I ever have before. I was always one of these people that would wake up in the middle of the night. It would take me like 15, 20 minutes to get back to bed. And you do that, you know, two or three times a night. And it's not exactly the best way to get a good night's sleep. Uh, So uh, other people take it to kind of quiet the mind, you know, that there's a lot of like a noisiness in the head, that kind of thing. Also, lower tension, uh, balanced state of mind, positive mental outlook, immune system resilience. What are you looking for? Have you tried CBD? And maybe you've tried some CBD product, but you were not happy with it. Well, that's the deal with growers hemp 
is that these are farmers and they control the whole process and they want the best product for you, the highest quality at the lowest price. That's what their focus has been because they saw a lot of other companies take advantage of farmers and customers over the last few years as all of this industry sort of got going and they're not happy with the way that went down. And so that's why their tagline is it's about the hemp and not the hype, because they don't believe in doing business like apparently some of these other companies uh, believe in doing. And there were a lot of people that came in from these like California, from out west, and they were like, this is what you need to do. And then they they took advantage of farmers. They took advantage of consumers. Growers Hemp uh, rejects that business model. They want to help you on your wellness journey. And by uh, buying the Growers Hemp products, you're helping North Carolina family farmers. That's the deal. Oh, and the stuff is great. So uh, as with all CBD products, got to give you the official GovCo required disclaimer that these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So, consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. But go to growershemp.com, use my name, Pete, and you'll get 20% off. Growershemp.com, promo code Pete at Check out for 20% off from North Carolina farmers to your home. Growers hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. So speaking of hype, see, there's another segue right there. Speaking of hype, <laughs> some are saying that the hype, no, the, the, um, MSNBC coverage of President Donald Trump was indicative of the coverage that we saw in all sorts of media outlets like uh, the New York Times. Here was their headline. Trump's halting walk down ramp raises new health questions it raises these health questions because look at the way he's walking down the ramp it must mean that he's mentally unfit for office and we need to have him removed on uh, based on the 25th amendment the cabinet needs to remove him or how about this one from cnn why the donald trump west point ramp story actually matters it actually did not um the Washington Post, as Trump casts Biden as Sleepy Joe, his critics raise questions about his own fitness. <laughs> In your face, you can't walk down a ramp. And remember, Joe Biden was actually asked about this, and he compared himself to President Trump's ability. They're you know comparing their abilities uh, to, well, walk. Look at how he steps and look how I step. Watch how I run up ramps and he stumbles down ramps. Okay? Come on. All right. So how about we'll watch how you walk up stairs and how he walks down a ramp. Right? Should we do that? Here's the MSNBC coverage. The event sparked some concerns about the president's own health, particularly this moment over the weekend where he cautiously descended a ramp during the commencement speech at West Point Academy. The exit might have gone otherwise unnoticed, but the president brought more attention to it after he tweeted late Saturday night. The ramp that I descended after my West Point commencement speech was very long and steep and had no handrail and most importantly, was very slippery. The last thing I was going to do is fall for the fake news to have fun with. Final 10 feet, I ran down to level ground, momentum. There's no indication, however, that the ramp was slippery on a clear, sunny day. Totally but nailed him. Totally exposed the lie there, Mika Brzezinski. Oh, my gosh. 
totally exposed it. There's no indication that the ramp was slick. Okay, were you on the ramp? Do you have like an eyewitness to tell you that the ramp was slick or wasn't slick or whatever? Like, by the way, there is something to be said here that as you get older, you become less steady, particularly as you're walking down a ramp. It's not exactly a normal kind of, uh, it's, not a, it's not a normal walking pattern, right? It's just not, especially if you are like Donald Trump, aside from out being on the golf course, I don't think he's put into a lot of situations where he's walking, you know, up and down steep inclines. Like he's not a hiker. He never has been, right? He doesn't strike me particularly as the outdoorsy type. (laughs) So you're walking in wingtips down a ramp with no handrail. He says it was long and steep and it did appear to be kind of steep. And I don't know, maybe I have a, a particular insight into this because I, two years ago, woke up one morning, world spinning, and it was vertigo. And I like, to this day, I have side effects still of this that uh, like we went out to uh, had some friends in from out of town family actually in from out of town. And uh, we went to uh, uh, was like a snow tubing uh, ramp, you basically, you know, go down this you're sledding a tubing uh, uh, park. And so we go down this uh, this thing, but in order to get to the ramps, you got to walk over a swinging bridge. And yeah, that was the first time I'd been on a swinging bridge since the vertigo. And uh, yeah, it really, really disoriented me, really disoriented me, like to the point where I thought I might like fall off the side uh, because I was losing my balance pretty quickly. So I just kind of ran across the <laughs> the last half of it. And I can see as you get older, you get kind of... Uh, less uh you're you're more hesitant you're less confident in your ability to navigate that kind of a walk especially when there is nothing to hold on to that's a tough walk to do anyway and, and again like i'm not here to bash joe biden for slipping and falling on you know three different steps on the way up to air force one i do have a problem with the argument that it was the wind <laughs> This is the this is the official line from the White House. Um, we're not getting, by the way, uh, uh, headlines from CNN. You know, is uh, is Biden afraid of stairs? That was literally uh, what CNN was reporting about uh, President Trump, though. But there's a White House deputy press secretary by the name of Karen or Karine Jean-Pierre. And after President Joe Biden fell while boarding Air Force One on Friday, the White House blamed his stumbling on the wind. Quote, it's pretty windy outside. It's very windy. I almost fell coming up the steps myself. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm not, again, I'm not sure this is the best play here. Like, the guy's almost 80 years old. I'm not sure this is the PR win you think it is by claiming that a breeze knocked him over. While climbing the stairs to board the aircraft, Joe Biden drew attention after stumbling several times. After he made it to the top, the president delivered a crisp salute at the door before entering the aircraft. I like how they say that, that he stumbled several times. Now, he, he, he fell. Okay, he flat out fell. Three different times, like it was like he stumbles and then he falls and then he falls again, all within the span of about five steps. 
And I'm sure it was kind of scary. Like your mind starts racing like, oh, my gosh, this is all on camera. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to fall all the way down the stairs. Because he was like halfway up. And that's pretty that's pretty high up. Um, now, according to the National Weather Service, this is the Newsweek report on the matter. According to the National Weather Service, Joint Base Andrews was experiencing winds of more than 20 miles an hour with gusts up to 25 miles an hour. But that did not prevent the president's plane from taking off. This past November, just after his 78th birthday, Joe Biden fractured his foot, you'll recall, uh, while playing with his German shepherd. He also then, uh, he's responded to these uh, concerns, shall we say, that he is, you know, 78 years old, that he's like, oh, no, Jill and I, we, you know, we race each other every morning on the Peloton bikes. And look, maybe, like, I would have gone with that argument, by the way, that excuse, I'd have been like, yeah, today was a leg day, you know, uh, but the president, you know, he, he does the Peloton cycling and then he did uh, he did legs today and his legs were kind of jelly, you know, from doing the lifting and stuff. And so his legs were weak. And that happens, you know, which, by the way, you ever notice like some of these superheroes, not the ones that are like, you know, mutant superheroes, but people who are just like, hey, I've got, you know, uh, like Batman, for example, I got a utility belt, I got a costume and I got like contraptions and uh, gizmos and gadgets and I'm a superhero. And so, you know, he's working out a lot and it's kind of like, whatever happened to like, like, what if you're like working out, it's like leg day or arms day or something. And then you get the bat call and now you got to go out and like fight crime. But you're like, oh, I'm so sore from working out. How do you prevent that from happening? Anyway, uh, these are some of the questions that I uh, that I end up having. But this this excuse, this explanation that it was the wind, it it actually reminded me of a joke that Norm Macdonald told, the comedian Norm Macdonald, formerly of uh, you know, the Saturday Night Live Weekend Update, uh, and I. I saw him on this episode of Jerry Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which I enjoy. I, I like watching it, and I don't have to agree with any of their politics to enjoy, um, you know, funny jokes. And uh, Norm Macdonald, well, here, he tells this story. And I don't know if you had this when you were young, but we'd always go, you know, we'll do heroin when we're 80. The idea being that once you hit 80, yeah. what's, what do you got to lose? Right. Might as well do heroin. But now that I grow older, I realize it's not like you become fearless when you become older. It's the opposite. You know, I remember my grandmother, I, I walked into the room once, and she had a bruise that, that uh, went from her wrist all the way up to her shoulder. Big, purple, yellowish bruise. Wow. And I said, my God, Grandma, where did you get that? The wind. <laughs> <laughs> so she's not doing heroin. Yeah, she's not doing heroin. No, exactly. That's the this this is a joke. The Biden team is actually using a Norm McDonald joke to explain <laughs> why Biden fell three times on the stairs. Come on, people. You're telling me the wind knocked him? I'm just not buying it. I am just not buying it. Now, speaking of media coverage from the very beginning of the pandemic. I have uh, focused on a particular uh, uh, survey that was done by Gallup. It was done for Franklin Templeton, the financial services company. And Gallup, they, they asked Gallup to, well, they paid them to go out there and ask people, what do you think the risks of getting COVID and dying from COVID are? It was a very simple question. And 
They then collected their responses, and Franklin Templeton uses this because, I mean, they're all about risk assessment, right? Because when you, you got to know your actuarial tables, you, right? People make decisions about whether to buy life insurance based on how long they think they're going to live and all of these other things. So that was sort of the purpose of asking for this survey, find out where people's uh, hearts and minds are on risk assessment. And what they found was wild misperception among basically everybody about the risk of catching COVID and dying from it. But the misperception was even more pronounced among Democrats than Republicans. And I have found that to be one of the most instructive pieces of information in this entire pandemic, because it really does inform why certain people react different ways um, when they're you know, encountering arguments or research. Okay, now I bring this up because Gallup has an update. Apparently, they went back out and they've got more information now for Franklin Templeton. And uh, now the New York Times did a story on it and it's it's getting coverage now versus like last year when nobody seemed to care about this information. I was pulling it off of the Franklin Templeton blog. But now people care. Just like Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they care about getting your house sold fast and for more money. They care about finding the right house for you. So do what I and Christy did when we started our house hunt. We called Rowena Patton at 333-4483, and we did not know at first what we wanted. So first, you know, we we started looking at existing houses, uh, you know, what's in our price range. And because I just launched the show, uh, it was like, well, what do we qualify on for a mortgage? Which, by the way, if you're going into business for yourself, you don't have any income to show. So you got to wait. So I, I you, we don't get to qualify based on any money that I am earning. So, um, so, so like stuff like that. We had no idea. And so when we we're looking at the housing stock and we're like, what is our price point? Uh, and then what, what kind of work would we need to do after that? Do we want to build something? And then Rowena was really helpful walking us through some of the, uh, the costs associated with, you know, custom building. And we were like, well, we don't want to do that. Then this is going to be too expensive. We would have to cut so many corners that it wouldn't be worth our effort. But uh, we, you know, they were able to uh, show us a whole bunch of different uh, uh, grant pro or uh, loan programs and this sort of thing. We finally settled on what's called a build to suit. So there's a neighborhood that's getting built. We pick a house and we make we, we get to pick some changes uh, inside of like a menu of options. Very happy, looking to move in a couple of months. And so I highly recommend you use Rowena Patton, buying or selling the only agent that I would call. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com is the website. Call Rowena Patton and then start packing. So uh, six months, that's how long this survey lasted of 35,000 Americans carried out by Gallup and Franklin Templeton, or for Franklin Templeton. And uh, they concluded that there was COVID misinformation circulating, uh, circulating on both sides of the political aisle. And people in both parties have misperceptions about how COVID deaths are distributed by age group, okay? So the truth is that 80% of all the deaths have been among those 65 years and older, okay? 80% are over the age of 65. Both parties tend to underestimate old age as a factor in COVID deaths, okay? So Republicans, Democrats, independents, everybody 
underestimates old age as a factor. Now, if you're listening to this program, you probably are not in that camp, okay? Because I have been hammering away at this as like the primary factor. It really is. Like when you look at the, um, when you look at death counts by uh, like per capita, per 100,000 people or whatever, when you start comparing different countries and different states, you see pretty quickly that populations that are generally older and fatter tend to die more. And what are we in America, if not older and fatter? (laughs) So this has not been, this is not a new development, I would think for a lot of, well, not for me, and I would assume not for you. So there is a great, though, uh, there's a great misperception among people in all of the political parties, Democrat, Republican, and independents. However, However, Democrats' estimates are consistently worse. They're further from reality. Okay, this according to John Sexton at HotAir.com. He says, on the other hand, Democrats were more likely to know that COVID causes many more deaths than car accidents or the flu in a given year. They also are more accurate on whether or not the virus could be spread by those with no symptoms, asymptomatic spread which there is disagreement about that as well. But Democrats got it wrong again when it comes to the rates of hospitalization. The actual rate, do you know what the actual rate of hospitalization is? It's 1% to 5%. That's it. 1% to 5% of people who get COVID will require hospitalization. But 41% of Democrats think that it's more than half of people who get it. Think about, that is a huge difference. So about almost, so what, four out of 10? So right, almost half of all Democrats think that half of COVID patients are going to end up going to the hospital. That is so far divorced from reality. Uh, Republicans were two and a half times as likely to give the correct answer. So even among those with high numeracy skills, Republicans were twice as likely to get the right answer, and Democrats were nearly twice as likely to vastly overestimate. What are numeracy skills? Glad you asked. Uh, this is uh, about, well, do you understand what these percentages mean? So they actually tested people about their understanding of these numbers and the percentages, because it's possible that some people may not understand the percentages and how they're being used, and that's why they're giving wrong answers. Right. That's why it appears that they may have a misperception of the risk when in actuality they just don't understand percentages. Right. They don't know what they're being asked. Well, when they actually tested people, they found that, no, no, this is consistent. Even people who understand what the percentages mean, they still are overestimating the risk. So getting the wrong answers to these questions directly connects to how much risk you are willing to tolerate. Right. Think about it. If you're a Democrat, if you're among the 40 percent of Democrats who think that one out of two people who catch COVID end up in the hospital, you're terrified. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to leave the house. Right. Why would you? That's you're going to you got a one in two chance of going to the hospital and then dying. So, no, you're not going to leave the house and you're going to be like, everybody do these things or I'm going to die. It the, the risk is is imminent and the fear is palpable, right? So for instance, he says, it's not a coincidence that Democratic teachers unions are holding up the reopening of schools primarily in blue states. That's 
happening in part because the estimate of risk on the left is out of whack. And of course, you could argue the same thing about people in red states reopening businesses despite the risk from the spread of more contagious COVID variants. The point of all of this is that a lot of the arguments we've been having now and for the past year involve people's general misestimation of risk, their misperception of risk. There has been a lot of focus in the media on Republicans placing that risk too low, right, with Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida being the uh, the target of you know frequent criticism. And the other side of that coin is that there's been very little coverage or focus on Democrats placing the risk estimate way too high, right? There's a, there's a general understanding in the media that Republicans are wildly misinformed about the risk. Like they think it's safe to do all these things. They're pegging it too low. But there's never any attention paid to whether or not Democrats are going too far in the opposite direction, that they are kind of hysterical about the risks. And without coverage of that, right, without that, that thought process, it feeds this cycle this cycle of fear that uh, Yanon Weiss actually wrote about at Real Clear Politics almost a year ago at the very beginning, talking about the media cycle of fear. And I will get to that in a minute. First, here is what you need to do if you have uh, some level of fear about what the future is uh, going to hold here. Then uh, you want to be prepped. Then you need some supplies. Then you need to go to Old Grouch's military surplus. It took me a while but I got there. The segue, it worked, people. That segue worked, okay? All right. Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. Uh, he's got tons of real U.S. military surplus. That's the key here, real U.S. military surplus. And uh, if he ends up getting some stuff, and this does happen like with body armor uh, especially, he'll get body armor in, and it may not be U.S. military, but it's to NATO specs. So maybe from like Norway or something or, you know, Israeli or whatever. But he, it's to NATO specifications. Um, and so he's always getting new shipments in of different things. He got a whole bunch of like uh, MREs that came in a while back. He got uh, what he calls dinner plates, you know, uh, body armor. He got those in. He got some razor wire. So he's always getting uh, surplus from all these different places. So you want to check in regularly. Go to the either the shop, which is downtown Clyde, or go to his website, oldgrouch.com. Uh, he is open Monday through Saturday. Saturday on Main Street, and uh, it's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. So ask him about that. It's a pretty cool story. Also, obviously, 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. And remember, tell him that you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. All right, so the cycle of fear. This is, again, this is a piece of Real Clear Politics, how media sensationalism, big tech bias, extended lockdowns. Okay, and again, this was from like, uh, well... Yeah, probably about a year ago now, almost. And um, he says, epidemiologists created faulty lockdown models. The media promoted fear. Politicians assumed worst case scenarios and big tech suppressed dissenting views. This is how people's fears grew disproportional to reality and how seemingly short term lockdowns stretched into months. Cycle of fear. Media gives the dire warnings. Politicians amplify the message. People get scared. Politicians get control. The media gives more of the dire warnings, usually now coming from government. Then politicians amplify it. People get scared. Politicians gain control. And it just keeps going. And then you add into that the big tech suppression of dissenting views. 
And this happens at a local scale. It, uh, it, it happens, you know, statewide. It happens at a national level. The suppression of dissenting views has been, to me, uh, one of the most scary parts of all of this. Because I understand government is going to government, right? They're, go- they're going to take liberties and freedoms from people. It's what government does. It's their natural tendency, right? So I've always understood that. The, the terrifying part of it is that you've got now private enterprises, businesses, big tech that control so many of the avenues of uh, information dissemination. I mean, this podcast is a perfect example of it. If for some reason, uh, you know, one of these podcasting platforms, they're like, you know what, Pete, you you're talking about something that we don't like what you're talking about. And so shut up. And they knock me off air. Basically, they take me off air. And it's not even like I get to go to a you know, to a manager and say, well, wait a minute, why, why are you taking me off air? I, I don't ever get to say that. There isn't anybody for me to appeal to because it's just some company somewhere else and they've just flipped a switch. And now what I was talking about is no longer allowed. And this is what has happened with some of the, quote, dissenting views on lockdowns, but also treatment. With mainstream media generally not covering dissenting views, places like Medium, and Substack and YouTube, but Medium is a big one. That's become a really important outlet where basically people can go and you can set up your own. It's, it's like a blog. It's almost like a GoDaddy kind of a deal. It's a you set up a blog and then you know people can subscribe to your blog and you'll and then uh, whenever you post something new, it'll get distributed via uh, uh, an email right to your uh, inbox. And so the site Medium became a really important outlet for researchers and people who were trying to. You know, figure out what is what is COVID doing? What is this virus doing? And how are we responding? Is this, are these you know good responses and this and that? Uh, the site continued to delete posts though that offered different opinions, suppressing the views of dissenting political leaders as well as even doctors. The media were also ready to promote a sense that society was about to collapse while suppressing calls for calm. How many people? Uh, did you hear during the beginning of the pandemic a year ago? How many people did you hear urging calm? No, 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 everybody. Don't worry. Don't worry. This is not a big deal. Right? Did you hear any elected officials saying anything like that? Well, no, of course not, because it wasn't because it, it was a big deal. They would be lying. Right. Remember, risk assessment. See, this is a, that's why I find people's attitudes towards assessing risk to be the most instructive piece of information, because it it infects everything. It affects. All right. I don't want to say infects. That's a loaded term, but it affects everything. For example, you've got a Democratic governor in North Carolina. That Democratic governor is a Democrat, obviously. And so does he fall into the 40 percent of Democrats who think that the chance of getting COVID and dying from it or being hospitalized, I should say, is a 50 50 shot? Is he one of those? I would like to think he's not. Because he's the governor and ostensibly he's got access to way more information than I do. Right. I would think he has that data that would disabuse him of that faulty idea. But I don't know. And nobody's asked him what his opinions are on these things. None of the media that gets screened into his press conferences that they don't ask these questions. Well, why not? Well, could it be that, you know, they're left leaning, too? So when you have. People who are, you know, Democrat adjacent, shall we say, if not outright Democrat, um, and they're asking a Democratic governor about these 
the pandemic responses, the protocols and such. Is it possible, just spitballing here, but is it possible that they may not be best suited to ask the kind of probing questions? Could it be that some of these folks are maybe, I don't know, terrified because they're misinterpreting the risks as well? They are misestimating the risk level too? That they think that it's a 50-50 chance that if you get COVID, you're going to the hospital as well? Is it possible that they are also of that mindset? And is that why we get the coverage we get? So when you suppress the other view, right, nobody gets the counter narrative. Medium was one platform. YouTube was another platform. And um, you know, deleted footage uh, was happening all over the place. People, you know, you had doctors coming out, making statements and people writing papers and stuff, and then they would get deleted. And I don't know if every single one that got deleted was true or not. But as uh, as Yanon Weiss writes, at Real Clear Politics in this piece, he says, I do know that YouTube cannot know the answer to these questions either. YouTube claims to rely on official health organization guidance. But of course, the World Health Organization originally said that there was no evidence of human to human virus transmission. The Surgeon General originally said we shouldn't even wear masks. Does that mean that they would delete videos disagreeing with those early opinions as well? Right. Health organizations change their views all the time. And they should, by the way. Right. We all of these health experts and elected leaders and stuff like they should be adapting their recommendations and their uh, response protocols based on the science. Right. Based on what we learn. It, you, you shouldn't say, well, we did this thing on day one before we knew anything and we're not going to change our response ever. That would be that would be crazy. Right. So the CDC, at first, they said the virus easily transmits through touched surfaces until they said, well, you know, maybe it doesn't. We have to leave room in the public dialogue for dissenting views because governments simply don't have a monopoly on the truth. I mean, heck, the CDC just changed their recommendations on the social distancing from six feet down to three feet in the schools. Right. They're constantly reinterpreting the data and giving new uh, recommendations. So when you stifle and suppress dissent, right, you're saying it's essentially YouTube and uh, like Google that they've also you know, washed out, scrubbed uh, uh, search results so people can't find things, right? Th that kind of suppression is basically saying that right now what we think, that's the truth and nobody should say anything else. Nobody should say anything else. And so how does this happen? Well, there's a there's a bit of a conflict. There's like a competing vision, if you will, of what it means to be a journalist, because on the one hand, you're supposed to be there to you know hold government accountable. But on the other hand, you're also supposed to be there to provide important information to the public, to your audience. You're supposed to be there to disseminate vital information, life saving information. So Considering that these reporters, usually they're not even beat reporters anymore, let alone a health beat reporter, right? They're, they're probably, you know, chasing apartment fires, uh, car accidents, uh, government meeting, and now all of a sudden a pandemic hits. They're not experts on science. They're not experts on, uh, on virology, right? On health policy. They're not experts in any of these areas. And so a government official gets up there and says, this is what you need to know. The experts tell us X, Y, and Z. And the reporter is in no position and is not confident to challenge that elected official because they just don't know. 
Now, I would submit after a year, you should be kind of up to speed. I mean, I've gotten a crash course in all this. I think a lot of people have, and I'm not an expert by any means, but I do know enough to ask some questions that have not been asked in over a year now. Um, and I think that, so this is the inherent conflict here is that reporters are have to, they've got to rely on this government official to give them life-saving information that they can then broadcast to their audience while at the same time being skeptical of that information. And a lot of reporters, um, they're not up to the task to, to, to determine which is which and, and how, to, how to behave, you know, in, and ha- what, what to relay and what to challenge and what not to. It's very difficult. I, I mean, I understand it, but that's, I think, part of the problem as well. Now, if you've got uh, a problem with your mattress, then I've got the answer, and that is Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com, that is the website. Uh, they ship nationwide. They have local five-star delivery service. And they have a 120-day comfort guarantee. And they're getting ready to launch um, their spring cleaning sale, which means, well, here's the long and short of it, is you're going to get a free complete bedding set, okay? You're going to get all the linens for your new bed. And, uh, or I should say, or you can choose to pick up an anchor-weighted blanket, 20-pound blanket. Have you seen these things? Have you ever used one of these things? Christy got one for uh, Christmas. And first up, like, it's crazy how heavy these things are, but they are meant to simulate a hug. That's what you put this thing on and it's weighted. And so you put it on and it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like you're just being wrapped up in this, in a big hug, right? And really, like, couldn't we all use a hug nowadays? Sure we can. Head on over to Mattress Man, four locations in Asheville, Arden, and Hendersonville, and uh, tell them that you heard it here on the Pete Callender Show. I appreciate that. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, and uh, buy local and sleep better. So concluding this piece at Real Clear Politics, journalistic failures uh, is what the last part of it uh, he covers. And he says, just as what happened in the wake of the 2003 Iraq WMD journalistic failure, the 2020 pandemic should serve as a reminder of the importance of journalistic rigor in the face of overwhelming groupthink. This is not a question of whether social distancing works or not. It's a question of whether shutting down businesses and locking up low risk populations in their homes whether that was worth the collateral damage and whether less draconian measures could have been even more effective. And again, we're not getting any questions like this in our, you know, once or twice a week briefings from Governor Cooper. We're not getting anything like this. Nobody challenges the basic premise of any of the actions this governor has taken. It's all about timing. All their questions are about timing. It's never about whether they were the right decision to have made. And this is evident in a piece at The Guardian. uh, Headline, Melbourne doctors under review for promoting discredited COVID treatment. And they they say, uh, trust the experts, we're told. Believe the science. But what happens when it is a group of eminent doctors who are behind the misinformation? And they back their claims with a superficially convincing bevy of peer-reviewed academic journal articles. These are the questions raised by the existence of the COVID Medical Network, a company run by three Melbourne, Australia doctors that have been promoting the use of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID-19 in defiance of the public health authorities, the World Health Organization, and most expert medical opinion. 
So you see these doctors, they believe that they have, they, they say they see better results when they treat people using various drugs on an outpatient basis. Okay. And, but because there are other organizations that say you can't do that. No, no, no. We don't believe you. We, we disagree with the efficacy of these drugs. Now the media says these guys are spreading misinformation. The CMN, the COVID Medical Network, also casts doubt on the reliability of tests for COVID, the PCR tests, because they only tell you whether you're positive or negative for the presence of the virus, not whether you are infectious. Right. That's true to the extent that, like, that sentence is true, but the, there's, it's more than that, right? As we've covered at great length over the last year with the PCR tests, is that, yes, it trips a positive, but it doesn't tell you if you are contagious, Right if you're infectious and this is the point because when people hear case count they think oh my gosh there are a million infected people all around me right again risk assessment it leads to a misperception of the risk of everyone else around you because the pcr tests right so this is the kind of coverage they just assume that these guys must be lying they're terrible and they actually mention a fellow by the name of dr peter mcculloch uh, he's the vice chief of internal medicine at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And uh, he has worked on research papers with U.S. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, who came up with the Zelenko protocol, which is the hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D and uh, zinc and azrithmias, azrithmycin or whatever it's called. And uh, this this drug protocol, which, by the way, when you go and search for this on the on the internet search engines, you don't find any kind of mainstream coverage of the Zelenko protocol. Well, why is that? Why wouldn't you why wouldn't you be exploring this? Well, Peter McCulloch testified before the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services uh, about a week ago. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and I'm an internist and cardiologist and professor of medicine at Texas A&M University School of Medicine. I'm on the Baylor Dallas campus, uh, and I've been intimately involved in the response to COVID-19. Now, um, the opinions I'll express are those of my own and not necessarily those of my institution. McCullough said that he is an academic doctor. He focuses a lot of his time on research, but he still sees patients. He is the editor of two major journals, he says, and he testified that in the field of heart and kidney medicine, he is the most published doctor in the world. As I started to survey the literature, um, I had patients with heart and lung disease who needed urgent treatment. And I refused to let an illness, which lasted for two weeks at home before they got sick enough to be hospitalized, I refused to let a patient languish at home with no treatment and then be hospitalized when it was too late. It was obvious. That was obvious in April that that was the case. So I used the best tools or drugs available at the time. And these are appropriately prescribed off-label. Remember, a label is an advertising label. A label isn't a scientific document. Sure, it's, there, there is an appropriately prescribed off-label use of conventional medicine to treat an illness. 
He assembled, he says, a team of doctors, mostly from Milan, Italy, because COVID was killing a lot of people there. They summarized everything they knew about all the available drugs, and then they published their findings in an August 8th issue of the American Journal of Medicine. And and it had a premise. There's two bad outcomes to COVID-19, hospitalization and death. The second premise, if we don't do something before the hospitalization, we can never stop it. We can never stop it. And I have to tell you, when I, and I was the lead author in that paper, but we had dozens of authors from Italy, uh, India, UCLA, Emory. We had the best uh, institutions in the United States. I can tell you the interesting thing was there was 50,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID. Not a single one told a doctor how to treat it. Not a single one. When does that happen? I was absolutely stunned. And when this paper was published in the American Journal of Medicine, it became a lightning rod. Oh, my gosh. It became the most cited paper in basically all of medicine at that time. The world started, and and boy, the world started knocking on my door. And I said, oh, my Lord, I just can't believe what became untapped. So that that response prompted his daughter to tell him, hey, you should make a YouTube video. And so he did. He said he wasn't even on social media before any of this. And he says that video then went viral. And then YouTube took it down, saying that it violated their terms of the community. That's when U.S. Senator Ron Johnson heard about it. Well, one thing led to another, uh, and I became the lead witness for the U.S. Senate testimony of November 19th, 2020. And the reason why there was Senate testimony is because there was a near total block on any information of treatment to patients, a near total block. And so what had happened over time is that we had gotten into a cycle in America uh, of no information on treatment. Patients actually think that the virus is untreatable. And so what happens is they go out to get a diagnosis. Now, I'm a COVID survivor. My wife in the galley is a COVID survivor. My father in a nursing home is a COVID survivor. You get handed a diagnostic test. It says, here, you're COVID positive. Go home. Is there any treatment? No. Is there any resources I can call? No. Any referral lines, hotlines? No. Any research hotlines? No. That's the standard of care in the United States. And if we go to any one of our testing centers today in in Texas, I bet that's the standard of care. I bet that's the standard of care. No wonder we have had 45,000 deaths in Texas. The average person in Texas thinks there's no treatment. They honestly think there's no treatment. So do you think that might be a good question to ask our governor? All right, we'll hear more from Peter McCullough in a minute. Uh, First, you need to hear this, general equipment rental. Spring is here, folks. It's officially here. And uh, all of the vegetation that's been laying dormant for the last six months, it is now going to attempt its siege. It's going to attempt to take over everything on your property, okay? You need the weapons to do battle, and that means you need... General Equipment Rental, either renting or purchasing. They are your official Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So if you have some equipment, by the way, that needs to be you know looked at, worked on, uh, then they can take care of that too. But if you're looking to upgrade, you're looking to replace, you need a, uh, a new mower, maybe some uh, hedge clippers, uh, pressure washer, trimmer, hedge clippers, whatever. Um, they've got the auto mower as well. This thing is like a Roomba, just rides around your yard and cuts the grass for you. It's fantastic. And it's all controlled on your app on a smartphone. And the question I always get asked, well, what if somebody steals it? If somebody steals it, it shuts down. As soon as it breaks containment from the property line, it just it shuts down. You can't use it, and it becomes a paperweight. Oh, and by the way, it sends out a GPS signal so the cops can locate the thief. It's pretty cool. Uh, they are, they've also got a fantastic deal that they're running right now on the Husqvarna 
uh, auto or uh, stand on mowers. These are uh, they put together two different deals. Basically, through the end of April, you put together these two deals and you can get like thirty five hundred dollars on a couple of these Husqvarna stand on mowers. All the details are at their website at generalrents.com. Or go on into their shop. They're located in Weaverville at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. Uh, Family owned and operated for three generations. A great business, a great family. And uh, tell them you heard it here on the program. I appreciate that. General Equipment Rental, generalrents.com. And think outside your toolbox, which ironically is really what a lot of these (laughs) health professionals and quote unquote experts need to start doing when it comes to treating outpatients. That's what this is about. It's about treating the outpatients. That's what this guy, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, is testifying about in front of the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services. This was about a week ago. And you know, maybe there's a North Carolina reporter who's deemed you know worthy to be called upon to ask Governor Roy Cooper in North Carolina some questions uh, at his next COVID briefing. But maybe somebody could ask, you know, what is the standard of care for people who test positive when you send them home, right? McCullough says all of the focus is on the vaccine and has been for months, not on the people who are sick right now. We use corticosteroids and inflammatory drugs. The best anti-inflammatory drug is colchicine. You've probably never heard about it. In the largest, highest quality randomized trial, over 4,000 patients, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, there's a 50% reduction in mortality. No word of it. None. Complete block to anybody, colchicine. How can that be? How can that be? And then the most deadly part of the, the viral infection is thrombosis. So I have always treated my patients with something to treat the virus, something to treat the inflammation, and something to treat thrombosis, just as Dr. Urso had. And I have very, very sick patients, and I've lost two. But I have to tell you, what has gone on has been beyond belief. How many of you have turned on a local news station or a national cable news station and ever gotten an update on treatment at home? How many of you have ever gotten a single word about what to do when you get the hand of the diagnosis of COVID-19? No wonder. That is a complete and total failure at every level. Okay, let's take the White House. How come we didn't have a panel of doctors assigned to put all their efforts and stop these hospitalizations? Why don't we have doctors who actually treated patients get together in a group and every week give us an update? Why didn't we have that? Why didn't we have that at the state level? Zero. Why don't we have any reports about how many patients were treated and spared hospitalizations? From all the, I listened to six hours of testimony today. Zero. Zero. We have a complete and total blank spot on treatment. It is a blanking phenomenon. By the way, thrombosis is the formation of clots inside a blood vessel. And maybe somebody could ask Governor Cooper, you know, hey, could you set up a panel of doctors that could talk about how to treat outpatients from COVID. Um, He calls it a travesty to have a fatal disease and not treat it. He says the National Institute of Health and the Infectious Disease Society of America almost exclusively focus on the hospitalized patient, not the ones who are sent home after a positive test. He says there's no guidance on outpatient care. They just say, you know, drink fluids, take some pain relievers, get some rest. And that's about it. He urged the Texas Senate to do something and to do it quickly. 
Let's put a staffer on this and find out all the research available in Texas, and let's not have a single person go home with, with a test result with their fatal diagnosis, sitting at home, going into two weeks of despair before they succumb to hospitalization and death. It is unimaginable in America that we can have such a complete and total blind spot. I blame the doctors for not stepping up. Where was the medical society stopping up and putting effort on this? How about from the federal and state agencies? There never was a single bit of group collaborative effort to stop the hospitalizations. Nobody even kind of thought about it. Bob Hall had me on a teleconference in, in April or May, and we're like, wait a minute. How come, where's UT Southwestern? I'm a graduate of UT Southwestern. Where's A&M? Where's the rest of the universities? How come we're not stopping this? He also asked, and I'll ask you, have you turned on the news over the past year? Have you ever seen a story about how another country is treating COVID outpatients? Not the ones in the hospitals, but the outpatients. He then says there are therapies, there are drugs that can work, but no single drug can work alone. So my testimony as I sit here today is COVID-19 has always been a treatable illness a very large study from McKinney, Texas, another one from New York City, show that when doctors treat patients early who are over age 50 with medical problems with a sequence multi-drug approach with the available drugs, uh, four to six drugs that are available uh, uh, to them, now the monoclonal antibodies are better, there's an 85% reduction in hospitalizations and death. 85%. 85%. I want you to remember that number, 85%. We have over 500,000 deaths in the United States. The preventable fraction could have been as high as 85% if our pandemic response would have been laser focused on the problem, the sick patient right in front of us. We were focused over here and focused over there and focused on masks and what have you. Laser focused, sick patient, treat them. We lost focus on the most fundamental thing. I will tell you, I ran into the same thing with Lyme disease treatment. There was a doctor who started treating Lyme disease patients, just treating what they were afflicted with and curing them, uh, you know, relieving their symptoms. And word went out that, oh, this guy treats Lyme. And he realized very quickly that there was a whole bias against treating Lyme disease for longer than two weeks. And they took his medical license in North Carolina. So this kind of thing does happen. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. You can give it a positive review as well. That would be helpful. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. We'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.